All right, good morning, everybody. Hope you have your Bible with you. If you do, turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. If you don't, like find somebody who has a Bible and get close to them so you can follow along as we study God's Word today. Uh, I think that last song that we sang is the stickiest song that we do uh, at, at, at First Baptist. Like, I will sing that for the next three or four days. It, it, just, it just sticks with me, and it is absolutely on message today. Uh, as we look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22, and 25, 22 to 25 today. Last week, we mixed up our normal order of service because the text was different from what we had been looking at over the last few weeks. Last week, there was no imperative in the passage that we studied. There was no clear and direct call to action. There was no command to obey. Rather, the text last week turned our eyes to the Lord Jesus Christ, turned our eyes to our Father in heaven, so after seeing them in the text, we sang in adoration, we sang in appreciation, we sang in worship, and it was good. It was good to do that together. And maybe you noticed at one point while we were singing, there was a poster that had been hanging here on the front of the platform for Winter Vacation Bible School. It had been hanging there for months, literally for months, it had been hanging there. And as we start to sing, sing after the message last week, it fell off. It fell down to the ground. You might not have noticed that. I could see it. I noticed it. And on my way uh, to church Sunday afternoon, I had Asher in the car with me, and he said, hey, did you notice, did you notice that poster fall down when we started singing? I was like, yeah, I did notice that. He said, we were, we were singing so hard. <laughs> we were singing so hard, the poster couldn't stand it. He's like, yeah, we, 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 amen to that. We want to sing hard. Uh, every, time, every time we get a glimpse of God in his word, we want to respond and worship. We want to sing hard to the glory of God. When we get a glimpse of God in his word, like we did last week, several things should happen. One, our affections should be raised. We should sing with gladness of heart, with joy and delight in the Lord. Number two, our fear should increase so that we don't treat the Lord like trash by the way that we live. Our fear of him should increase so that we would live with holiness, should motivate holiness and hope in us so that we display by the way that we worship and by the way that we conduct ourselves from day to day, we show that he is our treasure that he is not trash to us, that he is our great treasure and he impacts everything that we do. Well, this week we're going to get back to what has been our normal structure, not just in the order of service, but also in the structure of the text. There is a very clear imperative in the passage that we're going to study today, a very clear call to action. It is a command that we see over and over again in God's word, and we want to take it very seriously today. No matter who you are, no matter how you have been living Every single one of us in the room today has room to grow in the area that we're going to look at in the text. The command is fervently love one another from the heart. Fervently love one another from the heart. As has been the case over the last few weeks, this is an imperative sandwich. The command that we're going to look at, fervently love one another from the heart, is surrounded by supporting and empowering participles that describe why we can obey the command and why we must obey the command. We're not just called to this action. We're given a foundation from which to obey. We're going to see in the text today as new creations by God's grace through faith in Jesus, we must truly love one another. Let's look at it in the text today. First Peter chapter one, starting in verse 22. This is God's word. Hear it as God's word. Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. 
For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is, through the living and enduring word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we rejoice that you have seen fit in your sovereign goodness to rescue us from our sin. You have delivered us from certain wrath by your grace. You have sent your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, to pay the price for our redemption with his own blood, precious blood. You've caused us to be born again through faith into your family. We are no longer enemies of yours, no longer children of wrath, but rather your beloved and chosen ones, your adopted sons and daughters. And in bringing us under your fatherhood, you have also made us brothers and sisters to one another. By the gospel, you have not only reconciled and connected us to you, but also to each other. So show us in these moments the importance of loving one another well. Empower us by your spirit to obey your word with sacrifice and with gladness as we love one another, especially here at First Baptist Church, especially amongst the membership of First Baptist Church. Help us to love one another well. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So there's a lot for us to see today, and I think, uh, I think having that picture of the imperative sandwich may be really helpful. We're going to look at the bread, the first participle, then we're going to look at the meat, the actual imperative, and then we'll see some more supporting participle stuff uh, at the end of the day. So look at verse 22, the first slice of bread. It says, since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren. Now, like I said earlier, the main imperative here is at the end of verse 22, this call to love one another fervently and from the heart. But this first part of verse 22 supports and motivates that call to action. And as you study this text, there's some debate among scholars about what exactly Peter means when he says obedience to the truth. Some scholars argue uh, that, that what he means by obedience here and what he, what he means by purification here happens in a progressive way and increases as we grow in Christ-likeness. Particularly, it represents our growth in love for other believers. To use a language that we sometimes talk about here at First Baptist Church, this group of scholars claim that the beginning of verse 22 is, is focused on sanctification. It's, it's on the progressive obedience, progressive growth in godliness that we experience as believers in Jesus. On the other hand, there are some scholars who say that obedience here is not a reference to that ongoing growth in godliness for Christians, but rather it's a reference to the initial conversion of a lost person by which they become a Christian. These scholars say that this is a reference to conversion. This is a reference to regeneration or to being born again. And for Peter's audience, for Peter's audience and for many of us in this room today, that's something that we've experienced. And our lives have never been the change. We have been reborn. We have been made new. We have been regenerated. We have been justified. We've been converted, right? We've experienced that. And we've had the privilege over the last few weeks to hear some of our young people testify that they have experienced this. And we rejoice with them over the beginning of this new life of theirs. And we look forward to rejoicing even more next week as we baptize some of them. And I am pretty convinced that it's that second group of scholars 
who say that the first part of verse 22 is referring to conversion. Those are the ones that are right. And I would anchor that argument in Peter's own words in this letter that we're studying and also in his preaching as it's recorded in Acts. If you look at 1 Peter chapter 4, so this will be, I don't know, a year from now in our study of 1 Peter, uh, he says this, he says, For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Notice his his use of the language obeying the gospel there. So he is essentially saying, as he exhorts the people to holiness, under the knowledge that even we as his people will be held accountable for our actions, Peter says, how much worse will it be for those who have not obeyed the gospel at all, for those who have rejected the Lord Jesus Christ, for those who do not believe? That's what he's distinguishing here between the judgment of believers as the people of God and the judgment of unbelievers who have not obeyed the gospel, who have not believed in Jesus at all. In other words, Peter sees faith, faith as obedience to the gospel, which brings about cleansing and purification in our souls at conversion. This he speaks of in Acts chapter 15. Specifically here, he's talking about the concept of our hearts being cleansed by faith at conversion. And he's specifically defending the conversion of Gentiles through faith in Jesus at a meeting in Jerusalem, right? So Peter has seen the conversion of Gentiles and the folks in Jerusalem, the Jewish background believers are like, I don't know, can Gentiles really get saved? Can can Gentiles really believe in Jesus? Can Gentiles really have their hearts cleansed? And Peter is going to say, yes, they have their hearts cleansed just like you have your hearts cleansed by believing in Jesus. Look what he says. In Acts chapter 15, starting in verse 6, it says, The apostles and elders came together to look into this matter, that is, the salvation of Gentiles. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. They would hear and believe. And God, who knows the hearts, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did also to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Their hearts were cleansed by faith at conversion, conversion which, which involves faith, right, which is obedience to the truth of the gospel. We argued this same way several weeks ago about Peter's usage of the word sanctify and obey in chapter 1, verse 2. What I'm arguing today is consistent with that. What I'm arguing today is not some different thing. It's not just Peter who argues this way, though. Paul also uses the word obedience to describe conversion multiple times. Multiple times in Romans in particular, he speaks about the obedience of faith. The obedience of faith. That is the obedience that is faith at conversion and the obedience that flows from faith in sanctification. Paul doesn't distinguish those all the time. What I'm wanting you to see is that obedience to the truth is obedience to the call of the gospel. The obedience that Peter is speaking of here is obedience to the call of the gospel to repent and believe, which happens at a person's conversion, when they are made new, when they are regenerated, when they are justified, when they are reborn, which is the language he'll use later in the second piece of bread. We need to recognize in our time together today that the gospel does work this way, that that the gospel is not just a promise. The gospel is not just a promise to embrace, a promise to enjoy, We need to recognize that the gospel is a command. The gospel message is a command to be obeyed. 
John Piper says it this way. The gospel has a command as well as a promise. The command to everyone, everywhere, is repent. Turn from your sin and set your hope fully on Jesus Christ. The promise is that your sins will be forgiven and you will enter into the kingdom of heaven. And we extend the gospel to people as a promise. But so often we forget that it is a command. We forget to preach it like it's a command. Now, when we speak only of the gospel as an invitation to a party, when we speak only of it like that, we miss something. We miss something big. I got to go to a birthday party last night. I was invited to a birthday party. I had fun at the birthday party. It was enjoyable. But if I hadn't gone, I would not have been eternally condemned. You see, the person who invited me to that party does not hold any authority over me. The person that invited me to that party is not the sovereign judge of all things. The gospel is much bigger than an invitation to a party. It is a command, a command to be obeyed and disobedience to the command to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ comes with a massive cost. That is eternal condemnation and eternal judgment. So my question for you, even as we get started today, is what about you? Have you obeyed the gospel command? Have you heard of the holiness of God? How he is completely righteous, how he is completely just, and how he must punish sin? Have you heard about the holiness of God? Have you heard about the sinfulness of man? How we are completely sinful and we deserve only condemnation and only punishment forever and ever? Have you heard about the sacrifice of Christ? How Jesus came and died in our place? How taking our sins upon himself as if they were his own, he suffered and died for us. Have you heard about how Jesus was our substitute? And have you repented and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ? You see, grace and forgiveness, new birth, hope, cleansing are given to us as a gift of God's grace that we receive by faith, by turning away from our sins and by trusting God, by trusting in Christ, by depending completely on the work that he has done on the cross. Have you obeyed the command of the gospel, repent and believe? Or will you go on living in disobedience to that command? Will you go on in your sin? Will you go on in your rejection of Christ? Friends, if you go on that way, you will find only condemnation awaits in eternity. But if you repent and believe, there is the sure promise of forgiveness. There is the sure promise of reconciliation to God. There is the sure promise of heaven because of his goodness and grace in Christ Jesus. What, what about you? Have you obeyed the call of the gospel? Have you obeyed the command of the gospel to repent and believe? Now, before we move on out of this first verse, there's one last step. Peter is saying to his audience who are chosen exiles, who are scattered all over Asia Minor. He says, you have been saved. You've been cleansed unto or for a sincere love of the brethren. Through the gospel, these people have not just been reconciled and connected to God. They have been reconciled and connected to one another as well. You see, the gospel has a vertical aspect between us and God. Like between holy God and sinful man, there is reconciliation and restoration. 
But the gospel also has a horizontal element to it between us and us, redeemed man and redeemed man. We are designed to live together in a community. God has created us that way. Not just naturally. We see that in human beings, whether they believe in Jesus or not. Human beings draw together, right? That's part of the way he's created us. But he has also recreated us for community. We've been born with the tendency to gather together in a community. Born with a need to gather together in a community. And we have been reborn with an even greater need to be together in a community. He has brought us together as a family, not just naturally, but supernaturally within the church. Karen Jobes nails this when she says, to be chosen by God, set apart by the Spirit for the purpose of participating in covenant, in the covenant in Christ means necessarily coming into relationship with others who are also so chosen. The simple statement at the end is the best. She says, the Christian life cannot be lived authentically in isolation. Cannot be lived authentically in isolation. So Peter is saying to his audience, since you have been saved and you have been saved for a sincere love of the brethren, then do it, right? This is the foundation. All You have been saved and you've been saved for sincere love of the brethren. Now he gets to the imperative when he says, therefore, fervently serve one another from the heart. Fervently serve one another from the heart. That's the main imperative of today's text. And that's not a new imperative, is it? This is the first time as you've read through the Bible that you've seen God say, love each other. Like, really love each other? Is this the first time? Is Peter the only one that ever says this? Oh, of course not, right? This is not a new command. This is a hallmark of Jesus' expectation of his followers throughout the Gospels, right? We see this particularly in Mark chapter 12. And one of the things you need to know about Mark, Mark's Gospel, is that of the four Gospels, it is the most closely connected with Peter's ministry. In many ways, Mark is the mouthpiece of Peter, the Apostle Peter, who's writing the letter that we're studying today, right? And in this chapter 12, starting in verse 28, it says this, One of the scribes came and heard them arguing and recognized that he answered them well. That's Jesus answered them well. And he asked Jesus, What commandment is the foremost of all? And Jesus answered, The foremost is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And Jesus said, the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no greater command than these. Right? All throughout Jesus' ministry, he's inviting his followers to love one another. He's setting upon them the expectation and the commandment to love one another. He says it very explicitly in John chapter 13. In John chapter 13, just before Jesus is going to be arrested, just before he's going to be crucified, he says this. It says, therefore, when he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. And if God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him immediately. Little children, I am with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, now also I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Verse 35, Jesus says, By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. If you have love for one another, all men will know that you are my disciples. That's why we say they will know we are Christians by our love, by our love. They will know that we are Christians by our love. That comes straight out of Jesus' mouth, right? 
He says, this is how men will know that you're my disciples. If you love one another, the command of Jesus is constantly to his followers that they would love each other well. John records that in his gospel in chapter 13, and then he hammers it home over and over again in his first epistle. In fact, I would encourage you to do sometime this weekend, sometime this week, read 1 John and notice how often John reinforces this commandment to love one another. My favorite place when he does this is in verse 4, because he's, I mean, chapter 4, because he's just super clear and super direct about it. Look what he says. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him that the one who loves God should love his brother also. It's pretty direct, right? You say you love God, but you don't love your brothers, you're a liar. And he talks like that throughout the letter. He talks like that constantly throughout 1 John. The love of the brethren is a necessity. It is a command that must be obeyed. We are commanded to love one another. And this love that we are commanded to is not a feeling. It's not a mere emotion. It's not that we're commanded to feel all warm and fuzzy about one another. No, love here is the word agape. And it carries the weight of self-sacrifice for the good of others. This is often referred to as godly love. This is the way that God loves us. Even though we are often unlovely, and even though it costs him dearly, God loves us, and in the same way we are to love one another with self-sacrifice, even when we are not lovely toward one another. We are called to love in service to one another. We are called to love in saying truth to one another, even when those truths are hard. We are called to love by committing to one another. Even when life is difficult, even when there's strain and friction, we are called to commit to one another. What I want you to see here is that love is action. The love we are commanded is active love. It's not a warm, fuzzy feeling that happens to us. No, it's not like that because that changes more often than Southern Illinois weather, right? How we feel about one another, it comes and goes. It's not what we're called to here. We are called to commitment and service and action and truth. And our love for one another, when it, when it is acted upon that way, is evidence that we belong to Jesus. We saw this in John 13, 35. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Our love for one another is evidence that we belong to Jesus. Well, evidence to whom? Evidence to whom that we belong to Jesus? Well, John says, all men. That includes me. My love for the brothers and sisters in Christ is evidence to me that I am one of Jesus' disciples. It is one of those fruits that I must inspect in myself and you must inspect in yourself to say, is there love for the brother? I, I say I love God, but if I don't love my brothers, that's a lie. And so I need to be constantly examining myself to say, is there love for the brothers? Is there service and truth and commitment and dedication to the brothers and sisters, it is fruit that I must inspect in my own life to, to verify that I am one of Jesus' disciples. It is also fruit that we can see in each other and know that we are disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. When I look around this room and see love of the brethren, I can say these are disciples of Jesus Christ. By this, all men will know that you are disciples of mine. 
It's also evidence to the watching world. Our love for one another is evidence to the watching world, the lost world. It's fruit that they can see and they can know that we are disciples of Jesus. And I, I, I worry about this a lot. That as the watching world looks at us and the way we engage with one another, do, do they see love? Not, 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 oh, warm and gooey, are they always hugging each other, but are they serving each other? Are they speaking truth to each other? Are they holding each other accountable? Are they encouraging one another? Are they serving one another? Like, are they loving one another or are they hating one another? Hurting one another? What does the watching world see when they look at how we engage with one another? Is it evidence that we are Christians? Will they know that we are Christians by our love, by our love? Or will they assume that we are just like them? Our love for one another is evidence that we belong to Jesus. Evidence to ourselves, evidence to each other, and evidence to the watching world. And look what Peter does in this text. He piles on modifiers to describe the kind of love that we're commanded to here. The kind of love that we are to have for one another. He uses three really interesting words that set the bar of this kind of love high. First, in the first bit of a participle, he calls it sincere love. We are called to a sincere love. That means literally love that is without hypocrisy. One scholar refers to this as love that is not phony and love that is free from hidden agendas. What, what kind of love are we called to? We're not called to the kind of love that, that paints one picture toward you so that we can get something different from you. It's not self-centered love. It's love without hypocrisy. It's not phony love. He also says that it's, we're called a fervent love. This is a super interesting word which paints this picture of being stretched to its fullest extent. It, it is love that is stretched out to its fullest extent. It is intense love. It is strenuous love. The, a form of this word, this word to stretch out, is used to describe the prayer of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane just before he goes to be crucified. As, as Jesus prays, Oh, Lord, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. But nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. As one of the gospel uh, writers says, he was sweating drops of blood. It's a form of that word to stretch out, describing Jesus' fervency in prayer. That's the kind of love that we're supposed to have for one another. Not easy love, not soft love, but strenuous love, stretched out love, full extent of love. And he also says it's love that comes from a pure heart. That word for pure means unmixed unmixed with dirty things. That is, it is clean, it is pure, it is unstained. All brothers and sisters, particularly members of First Baptist Church, fervently love one another from a pure heart. That is what we are commanded to. That is what we are commanded to because, look at verse 23. Here's more foundation for that call. For you have been born again not of seed which is perishable but imperishable, that is, through the living and enduring word of God. We, we need to go back a little bit to the beginning of the chapter to remember some of this language that Peter has used already. Look at chapter 1, verse 3. As he begins this great section of doxology, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Friends, we have been born again. 
said it at the beginning of the letter, says it again right here. New American Standard, for some reason, puts the negative in the sentence too early, like they did in chapter 1, verse 18. But Peter is affirming the reality of his audience's new birth. He is affirming the reality of those who are in Christ having been born again. And he says that that new birth is a result of a seed that is not perishable, but rather it is imperishable. Now that discussion about the seed goes down some super interesting roads among scholars. There's a debate about whether this is a reference to human procreation or agriculture. And I will tell you that that debate is not very helpful. And it misses the point entirely. One preacher nailed it, though, when he said, the seed represents the source of life, no matter the context. Whether you're talking about human procreation or whether you're talking about agriculture, seed represents the source of life. Everything that comes to life in the created order begins with a seed, the basic life source that initiates plant and animal existence. But nothing in the material world has the capacity to produce spiritual and eternal life. You have been born again not of anything from the material world, not of things that are perishable, but rather that which is imperishable. What then is the seed by which we are born again? He says it is the living and enduring word of God. What is the seed by which we are born again? Is the living and enduring word of God. And that word of God is referred to a number of different ways just in today's text. Like you, you will, if you zoom out just a little bit, notice the centrality of the word of God in all of this. He refers to it as the truth in verse 22. He refers to it here as the living and enduring word of God. In verse 25, the first part of verse 25, he refers to it as the word of the Lord. In the end of verse 25, he refers to it as the gospel which was preached to you. What is the seed? What is the seed that caused the new birth in you? It's the word of God. Scott McKnight says... Humans and humanly created things are like grass in that they will perish and vanish away. But the word of God planted in Christians is eternal and grows in those same Christians to give them an eternal existence. This effective seed is, in fact, the sure word of God that they heard in the gospel that was preached to them. So, so far, Peter's argument goes like this. You have been saved for sincere brotherly love. You have been born again through the living and enduring word of God. So therefore, love one another. Love one another fervently. Love one another strenuously. Love one another from a pure heart because you're brand new creatures. You're brand new creatures who've been redeemed and you've been brought together. Look at verse 24. In verse 24, he says, For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. This is a quote from Isaiah chapter 40, and it poetically teaches us that the word endures forever. The word of God endures forever. Friends, for 2,000 years, the gospel has not changed. We, We preach today the same gospel that Peter preached at Pentecost. We preach today the same gospel that Paul preached as he traveled around. We preach today the same gospel that the reformers preached. We preach today the same gospel that Charles Spurgeon preached. We preach today the same gospel that Adrian Rogers preached. The gospel has not changed in 2,000 years. In Galatians, Paul declared that if anyone changes that gospel, if anyone tampers with it, even him or an angel from heaven, he is to be accursed. Right? The gospel does not change. The word of God is the seed that brings about life 
and that word of God will accomplish the purpose for which the Lord sends it. Isaiah says in another place, in chapter 55, he says, So will my word, which goes forth from my mouth, it will not return to me empty, without accomplishing what I desire, and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. He sends his word out for what purpose? To bring about life, to bring about rebirth, and it will accomplish that purpose. It's important here also to remember the audience. Remember to whom Peter is writing. These people are surrounded by a kingdom that seemed ultra-powerful, right? The Roman Empire ruled the world, right? And seemed like it would never end. And it was adamantly opposed in many ways to the gospel, to the word of God. That kingdom seemed like it would stand forever, but that kingdom fell. And what stands? The church and the word of God still to this day. Pastor Dillon often remarks about how unbelievable it would have been in the first century to tell people, hey, in just a few hundred years, people are going to pay 20 bucks to come visit the ruins of the Colosseum. Like to, to, to say that to those people who thought this is the pinnacle of human existence, we will rule the world forever and ever, to say to them, oh, in just a few generations, people are going to pay to look at the ruins of this place. Tourists will travel to look at the ruins of this place. This kingdom that seems eternal will come to an end. Every earthly thing will crumble eventually. But God and his kingdom and his people and his word will stand forever. So this brings up a question for us. What are we putting our faith in? What are we putting our hope in? Are we placing our hope and faith in things that will crumble? Are we trusting in the Lord? Trusting in his kingdom? Are we trusting in his word that will last forever? Look what he says at the very end of this. After he quotes Isaiah chapter 40, he adds, Peter adds this line. He says, and this is the word which was preached to you. ESV does a much better job here with this part of the verse when it says, and this word is the good news that was preached to you. This word of God was the good news that was preached to you. The word of God is good news, just like we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Look at this. Uh, skip Hebrews chapter 4. Yeah. It says, now, Paul preaching here, he says, now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel, the good news which I preach to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. This is good news, right? Paul says, I preach good news to you as of first importance. And this good news of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, he says, is in accordance with the Scriptures. This is the Word of God. Romans chapter 10, Paul makes a similar argument when he says, the Scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed, for there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? And how will they preach unless they are sent, just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things? Verse 16 says, however, they did not all heed the good news. They did not all obey the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? 
in verse 17 he says, So faith comes from hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. This faith, this faith that is obedience to the gospel comes by hearing the word of God, by hearing the word of Christ, by hearing the gospel of the Lord Jesus. Friends, what a privilege it is to live in a day with such access to the word of God. Like you, you know that there are believers in Jesus who have access on the planet today to just very small portions of God's word in their language. They've got a few pages of, of the gospel of Mark or the gospel of John, and they treat it like a treasure and they share it with one another. Did you know that there are entire people groups who speak a language that don't have any access to God's word in their heart language? There are people all across the planet who have so little access to God's word, and yet here we are, pull my phone out of my pocket and have 50 different translations and 500 different languages. I have access to God's word like no one in history has had access to God's word. What a privilege that is. What a privilege it is, frankly, to belong to a church that cares deeply about the word of God and is committed to preaching it and teaching it at every opportunity we have. That doesn't happen everywhere. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. The word of God is living and enduring. The word of God is a seed by which we are born again. And yet many churches just neglect the word of God. They get together and they talk about other things. It won't be the case here. Brothers and sisters, as new creations, by God's grace, through faith in Jesus, we must love one another. We've been made for this. We've been remade for this. Let's love one another well. So here are four applications from this passage today. Question number one is, have you been saved? Have you been converted? Have you been born again? Have you heard the gospel command and obeyed it in repentance and faith? And this matters more than anything else today. And if you say, yes, yes, I have believed. Yes, I, I have repented. Yes, I am believing and I am repenting. Then I would say, praise the Lord. Listen closely to the next bits of application. But if not, if you would say, no, I, I haven't. I've never repented of my sins. I've never trusted in Jesus Christ. I'm inviting you today to do it. Maybe today is the day that everything changes for you. We're going to hear from a young man in just a minute for whom everything has changed recently. He'd heard the gospel with his ears, with his ears, with his ears, and recently God has opened his heart to hear the gospel in such a way that it changed him forever. We're going to rejoice over that, and maybe that's happening for you as well. If you have been saved, you have been saved unto love of the brothers. And being part of a local church is a big, a big step in obedience to that, which leads us to... Application number two, are you connected to a local church? Are you really connected to a local church? We were not saved unto isolation. We were not saved unto selfishness. We were not saved unto self-centeredness. We were saved into a family. We were born, reborn into a family. Disconnected believers, disconnected followers of Jesus are in grave danger. Grave danger of radical misunderstanding of the truth of God's word. Grave danger of radical worldliness and sinfulness in their living. We were born to be connected to one another. So are you connected to a local church? And I want to appeal just in this moment to people who are watching online. People who are watching online. That has been necessary for some for a time. That watching online has been helpful for some for a time. But, oh, it is not in any way a replacement for in-person attendance 
or in-person participation. If you've been watching online and you've just settled into the comfortableness of watching online, we need you here. We need you here and you need us in your life. Like this distance is not healthy. And so I would plead with you to come back as soon as possible. Come back as soon as possible and re-engage with the body of Christ in person, in the flesh. I also want to say that this connection with the church, God's design for us to live together in community is about much more than having your name on a roll. It's about much more than having your name on a list as members of the church. Church membership means nothing apart from true connection, true partnership, true participation. I wonder if, if I cut my arm off and threw it away, if it would still think it's part of my body. If it'd be like over there, disconnected from blood supply, disconnected from nerves, disconnected from my brain, disconnected from every other part of my body, if I cut it off and threw it over there, would it have the perspective of, I'm still part of Chris's body? No, the answer is no, because it's dead, right? That, that arm does not go on living. It cannot possibly go on living. It's got to be connected to the body to live. Brothers and sisters, we have to be connected to one another. We are Christ's body, individually members of it, but we are Christ's body. It's no good to be disconnected. It leads only to death, only to pain. So are you connected with the local church? Third application, do you love the brothers? Like sincerely, fervently, from a pure heart, as the text says. Do you love the brothers? And I want to present to you that this is not a suggestion. This is, not, this is a command. And it's not even a secondary command. It's not like even a, a low-level command. It's a high-level command that we would love one another. This is an essential command. It is evidence that we are disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you love the brothers? And last application is an encouragement to study the word. Study the word because the word informs all of this. The word of God is living and enduring. We saw that in the text. And you have to know the word to obey the word. You cannot expect to live in obedience to God's word if you've got no clue what it says. I encourage you to study the word in your personal private times. Be privately devoted to God's word personally, reading, studying, meditating, praying. Be involved in a small group where we study the word together and we discuss it. And be involved in these settings where the word of God is proclaimed, where the word of God is declared and you receive it as an act of worship. Study the word of God, we need it. Without it, we will go our own way and our own way is no good. Let's stand together and pray. Father, you in your great mercy, have caused us to be born again. Not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. Caused us to be born again through the living and enduring word. You've made us new. You've adopted us into your family. You've made us your children. You've made us brothers and sisters to one another. And you have called us commanded us to fervently love one another from the heart. You've enabled us, you've equipped us, you've created us for this, and you expect it of us. So I pray that you will help your people to hear that expectation and to obey it. That we will love each other with sincere love, with fervent love, 
with pure hearts of love, that we will love one another in a way that honors you and in a way that demonstrates that we belong to you, that we are disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to do that well. Help us to do that better, better than we did yesterday, better than we did last week. Help us to be growing in that love for one another. And God, we recognize that there are men and women and boys and girls who've not been born again. They've not obeyed the command of the gospel to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that that changes today. That you will open their eyes to your holiness, open their eyes to their sinfulness, open their eyes to Christ's sacrifice for them. And I pray that you give them faith by which they will believe in Jesus. I pray that you give them repentance by which they would turn from their sins and walk with you in faithfulness and in obedience. Make them new. Give them a new life. Create worshipers for your son who deserves it. In his name we pray.